following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Jesus is um, heading towards Jerusalem. Uh, commentators call this the journey section. It's about the middle of the journey section where Jesus has determined, he's, he's set his goal and his focus on Jerusalem, knowing that his mission there is to die on the cross. Uh, on the way, as he's been teaching, uh, he's been confronting and challenging the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees and some of their wrong ideas and wrong thinking. And apparently, at least for one guy, uh, things are starting to sink in a bit. And he's starting to see that maybe salvation as the Jews had conceived it and what it meant to be in God's kingdom as they imagined it was not at all what Jesus was teaching. And so one brave soul asks the question, are those who will be saved going to be few? Um, now, to get the context of this, because this is a Jewish person asking Jesus as a Jewish rabbi about salvation. And, of course, he's not talking about everybody. He's thinking about Jews. And for the Jewish people, they had this idea that almost all Jews were in the covenant, were guaranteed salvation. And there were some exemptions, even as a, even as a chosen one, even among Israel. You could, you could blow it. You know, there were limits. And if you were uh, you know, blasphemous or completely apostate, you could lose salvation. But they had this idea that you know, if you were at least moderately trying, you, know, you do the bar mitzvah and you go once in a while to Passover and you kind of go through the motions, that pretty much if you were a child of Abraham, you were in. Right? Uh, and so that's kind of their idea. But it's starting to dawn on them that what Jesus is saying is very different from that. That in fact among the Jews, perhaps... Salvation would only belong to a few. Uh, and not only that, but that, uh, that Jesus appears to be saying that many who think they are in are in fact not. And that they should beware because salvation may not be as, as guaranteed for, for example, the Pharisees as they thought. And this, uh, of course, beyond just the, the context of the setting here, the question for the Jews uh, it, it raises the bigger question that's very um, relevant for today and a very troubling question, and that is the question, not only among Jews, but globally, among all people, how many really will be saved? Right? Is the number large or is it small? How many will God save? Um, and and the, uh, the question is, uh, as it gets kind of carried out, is, in the end, won't God save everybody? And uh, right now, this is a, and it's always been a question that the church has wrestled with. But in, in our modern times, it's becoming a more and more relevant question and a more frequently discussed question. This idea that surely God is going to, in the end, save everybody. Anybody heard that recently? If you've, if you're tuned into modern church culture at all, um, You'll hear that question. If you never heard that question, you probably lived too long in Thailand, and you need to get on the Internet, right? Uh, you need to go home and hear what's being taught at your home church and in your home denomination, perhaps, and at the seminary where you went, 
as this is being talked about, and it's a crucial and important question, uh, there's always been those who believe in universalism. In other words, the doctrine that everybody eventually gets there, that God will save everybody. What's interesting is that the trend that's happening now is it used to be it was liberals, those who held a very low view of Scripture uh, and uh, a very high view of man, uh, followed that. And what used to be called evangelicals, those who hold a very high view of Scripture as the authoritative word of God, uh, rejected that notion. But there's actually a group now called evangelical universalists. For me, that's like an oxymoron, right? Evangelical universalists. Okay? And there's, there's this, this thinking is seeping into the church, and it goes like this. If God is truly a good and loving God, uh, how could a loving God condemn anyone to eternity in hell? Right? That, that goes against the very nature of a God who's supposedly loving and good. Right? Why would he do that? Right? Why would he allow that? That certainly if God is the loving God we claim that he is, he would not allow people to face eternity in hell. Um, it could be summed up something like this. If God is indeed sovereign and almighty, then he must always get what he wants. If he is truly loving and good, then surely he must want all to be saved. Therefore, if a loving and all-powerful God always get what he, he wants, then love wins. <laughs> You've read the book. And everyone in the end will be saved. Right? And there's a lot of versions about how this plays out. Uh, some believe that God just generically makes people get saved. Some believe that, well, God actually sends them to hell. And eventually, after a long enough time being tormented in hell, people give up. <laughs> and God keeps offering love to them over and over again. Right? Throughout eternity, he keeps offering the gospel, offering the opportunity for them to be saved. And eventually, you know, after 10,000 years in hell, anybody would give up and say, okay, God, you win, right? Uh, love wins, right? Uh, that's the argument. And, of course, uh, none of us, no one who's compassionate and has a heart for other human beings would wish people to hell, right? Uh, none of us uh, like the thought, right? It's not that, um, well, maybe some do, uh, they need help, okay? But for most human beings, the thought of people spending eternity in, in punishment is, is, is a dreadful thought. And, of course, we want to find a way out. We want to find a path or a way that everybody can get in in the end. Well, what did Jesus believe, right? That's the most important question. What did Jesus believe and what did Jesus teach about this topic? Well, Luke 13 is, is some of the most clear and direct and simple teaching on this subject that Jesus gives. He gives it in other places as well. Uh, and I think uh, all of Scripture teaches clearly the truth. But we're going to look at what Jesus teaches here and how he addresses this problem. Um, and I want to just say, to start with, that the questions are real and valid. The reality is that for high school students, middle school students, young, young people... They are wrestling with this question. For some of you older people who have been a believer a long time and are super conservative, and you just, you just don't worry about the fact that people are going to hell anymore. Um, that's also a problem <coughs> and an issue. Uh, but this may not be your issue, okay, that this question. Let me just say that if you wrestle with these questions, the questions are important. And I want to be very sensitive to that, and I'm not here to say your questions are stupid. 
fact, what I'd like to do, I'm going to go through and I'm going to ask nine questions. I want to try to wrestle with some of these questions that, that people are honestly struggling with. Right? But I want to look at those questions and see how Jesus would answer them. Now, a disclaimer from the very beginning, I may not give a very good answer. I don't know that Jesus may give a very good answer to your liking. Uh, part of the process is wrestling with the question, not always coming up with easy, trite answers. But it's important that we do answer the questions, that we do uh, turn to Scripture and turn ultimately to what Jesus says for the answers to these questions. He's God. It is his will. It is his plan. He is the one who can adequately answer these questions. So let's see what Jesus would say as we um, unfold this passage. Um, uh, by, by the way, just, just a, one disclaimer. As we wrestle with these questions, one more disclaimer. Um, what we cannot do is get to the answers Jesus gives and decide, well, I just don't like that kind of God. I'm going to remake God into something I am comfortable with. Right? That is idolatry. Okay? And to do that is to reject the God of Scripture. Right? So as you wrestle with these questions, don't ever get to the point where the answer, or beware of getting to the point where you don't like the answer, and so you choose to remake God to be something other than what Scripture portrays him as. That's idolatry. So here's the task. Let's go. Um, Jesus makes it clear in no uncertain terms that he is the only way. So at whatever point people can get saved or however far into eternity it's extended, one thing is certain. The only way of salvation is through Jesus. Jesus puts it this way. Someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And Jesus said to him, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter, and they will not be able. Um, Jesus says the door of salvation, right, the only way to get into the kingdom of God, the only way into eternity with God, with peace and right relationship with him, is through the narrow door. Now, a lot of people misunderstand, and they think that what Jesus is saying here is that not many will get in. It's a skinny door skinny door so a large crowd won't fit. Not what he's saying, right? What he is saying is this. He's saying it's, it's a single file line, but, you know, you can put a lot of people through a door a single file. What he's saying is that the way is narrow, right? It's not broad. In other words, he's saying all paths do not lead to God. He's saying the path is singular. The way is narrow. There's only one way by which people can be saved. And, and he is the way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the door. Uh, so the only way that anybody will ever come to eternal life is through Jesus Christ alone. That's what Jesus says here. He says, There's, the door is narrow. There's only one door, only one path, only one way. At the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus, uh, <coughs> Jesus says this, uh, the question came up, do you think the Galileans are worse sinners because a tower fell on them? And Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will perish. Saying it to the Jews, right? Jesus is the only way. Why can there only be one way? Well, 
because of what it means to be lost, right? What it is to be human, what it is to be fallen. We, all of us as human beings, have sinned against God. We were born in sin. We are inherently sinful. And there's two ways to deal with that problem. One is to try to not be sinful. And virtually all the religions of the world, except Christianity, come up with some method or system to overcome our sinfulness. But I don't know of a religion that says, well, except for perhaps humanism, but even if you push that far enough, all religions would admit, yeah, we're not perfect, right? Human beings do bad things. We hurt each other. We hurt ourselves. We all somehow fall standard. It doesn't matter what the moral code is. We all break it at some level. You can make up your own moral code, and you cannot keep it, right? So it doesn't matter what the religion is, what the moral code is. The reality is all of them recognize human beings are not able, they don't have the capacity to live perfectly in line with their own standards and moral code. So they come up with uh, a plan. First of all, you've got to try to be good. If I am a good enough person, then I've got a shot at it, right? But we, we're, we all know we're not good enough. So plan B is in light of the fact that we're not quite good enough, we'll come up with a system that I can make up for the difference. So in Buddhism, you do what? You make merit. You tamboon, right? You do, you, you do extra credit work, <laughs> right? You stay after school and you write your name a thousand times, right? Or you do something to make up for it. And that's in essence what all religions teach. That there is some way that we in ourselves can make up for it. Through some sacrifice or through, through some extra effort, extra credit, we can make up the difference. Uh, Christianity is, is singular. It's alone in saying, no, there is nothing you can do. So this is what the gospel is. The gospel is you are desperately lost. You are desperately wicked and evil. Right? You are sinful to the core of your being, and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to fix the problem. Only Jesus can fix it for you. Only God can, through his wisdom, offer a sacrifice and make uh, the effort to make up for what is lacking in you. And Jesus, Jesus came. He gave his own life as God's son, as incarnate God-man, to die in our place as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sin and sinfulness. So it is the only way. There is no other way to have your sins washed away except through the blood of Christ. We are incapable of doing it on our own. So there can be only one way, only through Jesus. Scripture is super clear about that. Um, it's interesting, though. Jesus not only says there's only one way. He says this. He says, strive to enter. The word there can have the idea of to labor or toil at something, to strain at something. It's a word that's used in an athletic competition of somebody who's striving or straining to win a race. For most people, uh, you know, winning does not come easy. It takes effort, right? I would say for anybody, <clears throat> unless I'm wrestling a three-year-old, it's pretty effortless. But, you know, in a regular competition, it takes effort, right? He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Well, well why is that necessary? If, if God's salvation is a gift of grace, why is it so hard? Well, I think the principle is that Grace is simple, right? Jesus' sacrifice for our sin is, is not a complex thing. We messed up. Jesus stepped in, took our punishment in our place, and we trust in what he did for us, and we're saved. It's simple. 
But it's not easy. And here's why. Because part of what it means to be sinful, part of what it means inherently to be human, is that we are convinced we can overcome on our own, right? We think we can fix this. Okay, any of you have this experience? You're having a tough time. Things are not going well. Like this morning, the computer wouldn't work, you know. And um, you share with people, man, I'm just struggling right now. And you share with them what your problem is. And what do most people respond with? Most people say, yeah, you're kind of, you're kind of messed up. Let me pray for you, right? You're hopeless, right? So let me just pray for you because I don't know what to do. Is that what most people say? What do most people say? Oh, well, I took this vitamin once, and it fixed me, right? Oh, well, that, when that happened to me, this is what I did. Or here, here's some advice, right? Because why? Because we love to fix each other, right? We can't fix ourselves, but we love to fix other people, right? Uh, I, I know what will solve this for you, right? I can fix you, right? We want to fix it, right? And when the moral problem, when our spiritual condition caves in on upon us, something in us, our pride, and ultimately, and our self-will, our, our self-determination to do it myself, responds to God, I can fix this. I can fix this. There is a way I can overcome this. I can be better. I'll make up for it. I'll do extra homework. Right? I can do this. Uh, Jesus says, it is a strain to find the narrow door. Not because it's hard to find, but because it's hard to go through. Because it means laying down my self-will and my self-determination to get there on my own. No one can be saved until they come to the point where they say, yes, I am desperately wicked and I am desperately in need of God's help. I cannot do anything to fix it on my own. The sad reality is most people will not come to that point in their life. Most people will not have the humility to admit they are so messed up and so far beyond help that they cannot do it on their own. It is a strain. It is a struggle, not externally, but internally with myself, to give up and to trust in God alone. I want to be in control of my life. Um, sadly the gospel is often presented in a way that makes it very easy right we want people to we want them to get converted we want them to pray the prayer right so we present jesus as a club you can join and all you have to do is be willing to associate with him right you just have to be willing to come like to church and hang out with Jesus once in a while, and you're in. Right? And we offered the gospel that way sometimes. You know, become a Christian. Hang out with Jesus. Come to church. You know, do Christian things, and you can be saved. And so people pray some prayer, and they, they show up at the party. Right? And maybe they even take communion and go to Bible studies. Maybe they even become missionaries and serve God. Right? And they associate with Jesus, but they do not bow their life before him and trust him completely for salvation. Jesus goes on, he says this, he says, um, uh, some of you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. They're they're standing outside the door knocking. They said, let us in. We we, we had lunch with you. (laughs) We went to church. We took communion. Right? 
I didn't miss a whole year. I, I went a whole year of Sundays. I did not miss once, right? And I, I endured countless sermons. It's got to count for something, right? I didn't even fall asleep through all of them, right? It's got to count for something. It is not enough to associate with Jesus. Right? It is not just not enough to hang out with him. You have to trust in him alone as the only way you can be saved. Right? That's the door. And that's why it's difficult. Right? That's why it's difficult. Uh, why isn't seeking enough? Right? He says, many, many will seek but will not be able. Right? Well, because it's hard. right? Because because um, um, many people don't really want God, right? They want, this is what they want, right? They're seeking, right? But they're not really seeking God's salvation. They're seeking God's blessing without letting God be God, right? And you can't have that, right? God's kingdom means God's king. He rules, Right? And the only way people will come to him is if they unseat themselves from the throne of ruling their own life and they put God as, as king, right? as ruler. That's why it's hard. Human pride will not let us do that. <clears throat> uh, Jesus recognizes, he says you know, in the parable, it is a parable, but he says when they come knocking on the door, um, they don't come saying this, Lord, God, you are sovereign and holy. I am sinful and I do not deserve your salvation. And I stand at the door on the outside knowing that I am getting what I deserve. And you are just and right in kicking me out. Right? That's not what they're saying, is it? Right? Ironically, if the person said that, they would, be, they would be well on their way to receiving grace and salvation because that's the first step. Right? And so they're saying, hey, look, we, we deserve to be there. You know, what's up? Aren't you a loving God? Right? You hung out with us. I, we, we ate together. Right? Seeking is not enough. We must not just seek heaven, seek eternal life. We must seek God and a relationship with him. Jesus says, I do not know you. Now, of course, he knew them. God knows everybody. He knows everything about everybody. But he means, I have not entered into a personal relationship with you because you have not wanted that. Right? You have not wanted that. <clears throat> uh, moving on. Again, realizing these are insufficient answers, you know, but you, you go home and struggle with it. Um, so the door is narrow, uh, which is one problem. But there's another problem, and that is that the time is short. Jesus says to them, he teaches them, now is the only time you have to choose. Notice what he says. Verse 25, when once the master of the house has risen and done what? Shut the door. Shut the door. And you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer to you, I do not know where you come from. I do not know you. It is too late. It is too late. Right? Jesus says it clear. Right? Jesus does not give hope here that he will extend grace for eternity. Um, in fact, it, in, in the context of what's going on here with the, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders, uh, they don't even really have until their death, right? And what's happened as you go through the progression in Luke, 
Jesus has been trying to proclaim the truth to them. He has been inviting them into the kingdom. And they have been rejecting it and rejecting it and rejecting it. And what Jesus is really saying here is not, you know, you got a few more years. Some of you guys are going to live for 20 more years. So you got lots of time to think this through. No, he's saying, no, now, right now is the moment. If you don't take the door now, if you don't receive the truth of who I am now, the door is closed. And in a year from now, you may still be alive, but the door for you will be closed. Because the kingdom that God offers is not after we die. The kingdom that God offers is available to us in some measure here and now. Because, you know, we get the full deal when we die. But he's inviting us into the kingdom now. Um, So the door is shut. So this is the picture. It's changed the metaphor a little bit. Forgive me, Jesus, for changing your metaphor. But in in our day, we might say it it is a small window of opportunity. It is a window of opportunity, and it's limited. Why? Why does not God give more chances, right? Is he just impatient? Is God just, like, kind of petty? And it's like, well, you know, I invited you. You didn't come. You're lost. Poof, it's over. Or is there something else going on here? Well, here's why I think God does not give more chances. And it has to do not with God's nature, because God is is very patient. God endures. He is long-suffering. He put up for a long time with Israel in the Old Testament. He's demonstrated he is long-suffering. The issue is not with God or his character or his patience. Again, the problem is with the nature of the human heart. And this is the deal. When people are confronted with the truth of the gospel, it always demands a decision. You either receive it as truth or you reject it as false. You either yield to it as something that you need or you reject it as something you do not need. And here's the reality. Every time you, you reject it, you put up a layer of stones right, between you and the truth. And every time it comes and you reject it, the wall just gets higher and higher until it comes a point where you have sealed your fate right, because you have rejected it completely. And we know this, right? That's the nature of sin. Right? When people start walking down a sin, the path of sin, does it get harder to sin or easier? If I can speak from experience, it gets easier, right? The more you do it, the more your heart becomes what? Hardened. Right? You're no longer sensitive to the pricks of the Holy Spirit and of conscience. Right? Same thing's true here. When you reject the truth of the gospel, when you say, I don't need that, It's not for me. I don't believe it's true. I don't need what Jesus did. I'll find my own way. You harden your heart. You harden your heart. How long can one harden their heart before it is impenetrable? Well, Jesus says not that long. Not that long. Now, he doesn't give a time frame here, and I would never do that. Uh, And certainly, for many people, it takes years, maybe decades, for them to really come to fully understand what the gospel is. And God is gracious in that. He will keep proclaiming. He will keep giving his message until we really understand what it is. But once there comes an understanding of what God has offered, you either receive it and welcome it or you reject it. And rejection means a closed door. Right? It is not so much that God closes the door as much as that we close the door on ourselves. Right? Um, <clears throat> Why is it so terrible to be left out? A lot of people would say, well, okay, so we didn't get in the kingdom, but, you know, it can't be all that bad, right? Um, 
Jesus says this, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the peoples of the kingdom of God in, but you yourselves cast out. Why does hell have to be a place of such torment? Right? Uh, is God some kind of masochist? Is some, some kind of God some kind of cruel torturer who wants to torment people so he creates this horrible place uh, because they wouldn't come in and he's going to punish them? Right? Well, again, that is not the nature of God. The problem is not with God. The problem, again, is with, with us. It is with us, right? Uh, Jesus said it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an idiom. So it's a Greek idiom that pictures deep regret, deep, deep regret, or lament at loss, right? So, you know, you didn't get, you didn't get picked to plan your favorite soccer team. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. <laughs> well, no, it's way worse than that, right? It, it, it's, it's devastating loss. And here's the picture of somebody who's outside the kingdom looking in at Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the prophets, and they, they regret. Well, what's that about? Well, the problem is that we were created by God for his glory. Guess how God made us? It's what he made us for. It is the purpose of our life. We were created for his glory. We were created to love and worship and honor him. Uh, it's how he made us. And rejecting him does not unmake the core nature of what we are, what we live for, what we are driven toward and for and by. But, he, but here's the problem. We, we become eternally stuck and caught between two huge tensions when we let our pride capture us. And prevent us from doing the one thing we were created to do, which is to glorify and honor and worship God. To live for him in his glory. Uh, here's the picture of it. I have, I have a grandson who will go unnamed, uh, who, who is just as strong-willed and stubborn as it gets. Right? I'm thinking that came through Denise's side of the family. I'm not sure. No, it's human nature. Human nature. Right? And this is how it goes with him. Parents, being good parents, say say to him, you know, uh, you can have dessert. Tonight we're having, you know, brownies with ice cream and chocolate fudge, right? And we would love for you to have that, but to do that, you've got to eat dinner, vegetables or whatever. And because he's strong-willed, not because he hates vegetables or because he hates dinner. It's not about that. Because he's strong-willed, sometimes he just gets this defiant spirit that says, I am not eating dinner and you cannot make me, right? And I mean, he, he will dig his heels in. Dig his heels in, right? And it's like, fine, don't eat dinner. Fine, right? We're going to make a power battle out of this. But, you know, we all eat. Dinner's done. It's all take, put away. And out comes the ice cream and the brownies. And what does he want? Well, he wants the brownies. He wants the brownies. I say, yeah, you know, you had your chance. You chose not to eat dinner. So guess what? You don't get dessert, right? Well, how does he feel about this? Well, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. There is weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? There is huge regret because he's trapped himself by his stubbornness and pride. Right? He's trapped. The thing he longs for, the thing he wants more than anything else, he cannot have because he won't let himself yield to somebody else's control. That's, that's how we are as human beings, right? And that's what hell is. Hell is a person who was created for God's glory, 
who was made to worship and love and honor him. And deep down inside, they want that more than anything in the whole world. But standing between them and worshiping God is their own pride that absolutely refuses to let God be God. They are going to be God over their life no matter what. And in their pride, they will not bow. They will not yield. They will not accept uh, God's grace and forgiveness. Right? So they are stuck. They are stuck. Right? And they're not stuck because God's tormenting them. They are tormenting themselves. Right? Because they cannot be what they were made for. They will not have it. Um, so there really is there there really is just one choice in life, right? Life boils down to this. Uh, moving on, uh, changes the scene a little bit. The parable's over, but this this fits the context fits. It says at that very hour. So as 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 Jesus is discussing these things, as he gives this parable. At that very hour, some Pharisees came to him and said, "Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you." Uh, there's really not any animosity. Uh, Many of the Pharisees wanted Jesus to go away, but these Pharisees apparently still um, were trying to help Jesus, right? They said, look, Herod's out to get you. You need to flee because he's going to kill you. But Jesus says to them, go tell that fox, right? Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Short synopsis of all that is simply this. Jesus says, look, tell, tell, tell Herod not to worry about it because nothing will get in the way of God's purpose. Okay? doesn't matter if Herod, king of Galilee, doesn't matter if Pilate, doesn't matter, uh, you know, the emperor of Rome himself, nothing will stand in the way of God accomplishing his purpose. And God... God's purpose in Christ was simply that Jesus would go to Jerusalem to die like all the prophets, to give his life on the cross as an atonement for sin. Nothing can hinder God's plans. Okay, nothing gets in the way of what God wants to do or accomplish. Be clear about that. Jesus is clear here. I'm going to, to the cross, but I'm not going to go until just the right time. I will do all the ministry I need till to that point, but then I'm going to Jerusalem and I will die there. And I will die according to God's time according to God's purpose and for God's glory. And through that, I will bring salvation to those who will receive it. Nothing gets in the way. Okay? God is not in any way restrained in accomplishing his purpose. Right? So the question is, well, then, if God's purpose is to save people, then why doesn't he save everybody? Right? If God wanted to, he could certainly do that. Uh, notice what happens next. Uh, so Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Notice what he says. How often, how often I would have gathered your children together as hens her, uh, gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Here's the reality. God will accomplish his purpose. Nothing stands in its way. But here's, here's the reality. In this place, Jesus does not get what he wants. Right? Jesus wants to save Jerusalem. And Jerusalem here is pictured as all of Israel. Okay, it's not just the city he's worried about. He's worried about his people, Israel. Right? And he said, how I have longed, I have wished, I have desired. The word there is, is the same word that's used for will. Right? How I have willed, will, how I have desired 
that uh, that that I could bring salvation, kind of like a, a, a hen broods over her chicks. And it's an amazing picture of fatherly love, or in this case, motherly love, a parental love, where the, the hen gathers the chicks and folds its wings out over them as a means of rescue and protection. So Jesus says, I have longed for that. I have longed that I would bring salvation to Israel. My heart, my, my longing, my deep desire is that they would come to salvation that they would get this, that they would understand who I am, and they would enter through that narrow door. I have longed for that. But what happened? Well, literally in the Greek it says, but they would not will it. Right? They were not willing. They were not willing. Uh, the argument that in the end God gets what he wants is, is false. Uh, God will get his purpose. His plan will be accomplished, absolutely. Does God want everybody to be saved? Absolutely. God loved Israel. God loves everything he has created. God loves every human being. Does God want people everywhere to be saved? Absolutely. Like like a father longs for his children. Right? Uh, we can't imagine God's heart for lost people. And we, uh, we would do well to try to get that heart for lost people. Okay, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Um, but the problem is this. They would not have it. They would not have it. Um, God will never override the will of men. Right? When we reject him, God honors that. Right? It's the way he made us. It is the way it is, right? Could he made us differently? Well, he could have, yes. But it's not how he made us, right? Something about being created in his image as free beings with free will and free choice, right? He's given us the freedom and the authority and the sovereignty to choose not him. And God honors that. God honors that, right? Uh, He does not force himself through. He does not make us receive him or come to salvation. So what hope is there for the lost? Well, Jesus gives great hope. He says in verse 29 this, he says, And people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and they will recline at table in the kingdom of God. God God is calling many to salvation, not only in Israel, but around the world. Every corner of the globe, people will come through that door and they will find salvation. And behold, some that are last, some are last who will be first. Okay, here it means rank. First means to have position of honor. Israel was in the place of honor. Uh, the Gentiles were in the place of dishonor. He says those who were first, the I- Israelites, place of honor, will be dishonored. They will lose salvation. Some who nobody thought had a chance of salvation, those who are last, will find Salvation, they will be first, right? Uh, then in, in uh, verse uh, 32, he says this, God, um, verse 35, Behold, your house, that is Israel, is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even for Israel, Jesus still holds out hope. He holds out hope, and the rest of the New Testament holds out hope that someday Israel as a nation 
not only as individuals, but as a nation, Israel will once again recognize Jesus as, as her Messiah and will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and they will be saved. Right? They will be saved. Praise God that he does not give up on Israel. He does not give up on the lost. Um, he offers salvation right, to all, to everyone, for all those who will receive it and walk through that door. Um, let's close with just a couple of practical things about what we do with this truth, this reality. Right? Uh, I guarantee I didn't answer all your questions. For some of you, I just created a hundred more. Right? And you'll be tormented with those. Here's the thing. Uh, don't just chuck the questions. Right? Don't let people tell you the questions are not important. Wrestle with the questions. Um, do not just, and I've heard people say this, don't just throw your hands up and say, well, there's all these different camps, you know, and there's people on this side and there's people on that side, and I just can't figure it out because it's too confusing. So I'm just going to believe everybody's going to heaven in the end. Uh, that's silly, okay? That's ridiculous. God's given us his word. We are to wrestle with the questions, but we are to take them to Scripture and to him, right? Go to Scripture and see what the Bible says, right? Study it for yourself. Um, and realize that truth oftentimes is very paradoxical, meaning sometimes it seems like two opposite things that don't seem like they could ever go together. Because right? you throw into this the whole thing about God's divine predestined choice and election, okay, it'll, it'll just throw your brain into you know, a huge power outage. Right? Uh, I'm not saying the answers are simple, but I'm saying we need to be, keep going and searching for truth because the, the point is this reveals something about who God's character is. Is God a God of love? Yes, infinitely beyond what we can imagine. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem to die on the cross out of his great love for us. Right? In this, the Father demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. God is a God of infinite, incredible, enduring love. Don't let people say, well, a God who would send people to hell can't be a God of love. Okay? That is missing the point of who God is and what he's revealed about himself in Scripture. It is not an issue with God. It is an issue with human beings and our nature. Right? We are the reason we are not in heaven, not God. Right? So it is important that we wrestle with these questions and we come to clear biblical answers. Right? It's, it's important. It is not a minor or irrelevant doctrine. Second thing, uh, this may not be important to you and you may have it all sorted out. Your kids do not. Your, your kids and your grandkids do not. And the world we live in where relativism is increasing and where the authority of scripture is diminishing, right, um, they are wrestling with these questions and you need to be talking with them. Okay? But here's a warning. Don't freak out when they, when they start thinking the wrong things. Right? You've got to give them space to wrestle it doesn't do any good for us to tell them what they have to believe or we disown them. <laughs> as tempting as that is, right? it's not helpful. Instead, we need to do what? We need to, we need to help them on their own go to Scripture and answer the questions for themselves from Scripture. Resist the temptation to give them your pat answers that they don't understand. Right? Help them wrestle with the issues and answer them on their own from Scripture. Right? Um, 
that you know their eternal destiny rests in this, right? Because if they say, ah, it doesn't really matter. God saves everybody, so I don't need Jesus. I'll just hang out at church. I will just associate with him. Jesus says, no, that is not enough. Lastly, we need to proclaim the gospel, right? The reality is Jesus says he is the way. There is no way but through Christ. Another huge question is what about all those who have not heard? not going to answer that one this morning, right? Different question, different day, right? But we do know this, that God's called us to be witnesses of the gospel and to tell people that salvation is in Christ alone. And we've got to be super careful that when we do that, we do not proclaim a cheap gospel that says all you have to do is associate with Jesus, but not make him Lord and Savior over your life. Not coming to a place where you say, God, I am wicked and I am helpless and I desperately need you. I think one of the reasons in today's world and in today's church there are so few true disciples is because, because we have churches full of people who are not really believers. Uh, and they're going to get to uh, the end and they're going to be standing outside that door knocking saying, hey, I was in church forever. Right? Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you wicked generation. I, did not kn- I do not know you because you do not come to me for salvation. You do not trust in me alone to save you. Right? Um, we need to preach the true and full gospel, and it's hard. Right? We need to preach to people that they are sinful and wicked and desperately unable to fix themselves. Right? You cannot water that down. Right? And a gospel that says, well, God's just love. You know, he's just love. And we just preach Jesus' love. And we don't teach his holiness and the consequences of missing this choice. Right? We do not help people. We do not love people. We do not defend and proclaim God's glory. Right? So preach the gospel. Preach the whole gospel. Um, and the good news is this, right? Uh Many, many find their way through that door. He says people come from north and south, east and west. Many will sit at his table in the kingdom. Amen? If we are humble enough to admit how screwed up we are and that we cannot fix it, that Christ alone is our hope, we are in his kingdom. We are invited today to fellowship with him, not just waiting till we die, but today we can sit at table with him and commune in fellowship. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. with him.